Well, good morning. My name is Kyle. I am one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be your pastor, truly. And we are going to open up the Bible. And so if you didn't already, make sure you grab one of the Bibles around you and open it up to Romans chapter 3. The Bibles that we said around the room are on uh, page, that Romans 3 is on page 940. Uh, so let's, as you're doing that, let's just take a moment of silence, just recognizing that through the Bible, God is about to speak directly to us. So let's just take a moment of silence. God, your word says that it'd be better to be dead than to not hear your voice. And we just proclaim that now. We want to hear your voice. Help us hear. Amen. All right, well, welcome to Living Stones if you're a guest. And uh, if you're here for whatever reason, I know Matt uh, listed a lot of reasons. I know that all of us in some way have doubts about God and uh, skepticisms about Christianity. And this is a great place for you to be so that you can search out who God is and what the Bible says. And we hope that you feel welcomed here, truly. And uh, we're not going to force you to do anything that you don't want to do. And today is a great message for you because in the passage today, the Bible is not beating around the bush. Like as Shelby was reading that, you might have heard, you know, just everything that it talks about. And you might be like, wait a second, I came to church to feel good about myself today. Like, but this is not like a bubblegum message. You know, this is not like a, this is, this is not God saying, I'm going to rub your back and make you feel all better about yourself today. Like you have a wife to do that, or you have a friend to do that. Like today, God is speaking real talk to us. Today, God is speaking real talk to us. And you see, as Christians, we have good news. We have good news. We call that good news the gospel, right? Uh, the gospel is that God has sent his son to save us. Amen. Uh, each of us, every single one of us, has wandered away from God. But Jesus, as the great shepherd, has come to bring us home. Hallelujah. We were dead in our trans transgressions. Not like sick and almost dying. We were dead in our sins. And Jesus resurrected from the grave to make us alive again. If, uh, later on in Romans, we'll see that we were enemies to God, but Jesus bore our sins on the tree so that we could be sons and daughters of the living king of the universe. And so that's why Christians say things like, amen. It just means yes, or hallelujah, which you're welcome to say in the service as I'm preaching. Don't worry about interrupting me. It's, it's good to give praise where it's due to God. And so we have great you know, uh, great news, but it's only great news in the light of the bad news. Like you can't receive this good news until you've also received the bad news about ourselves. In other words, the freedom of the gospel won't pick you up until the horror of your sin has knocked you down. You will never come to the well of God's grace, which means his undeserved love for you, until your soul becomes desperate in the desert of your own sin. We read about that in the Psalms. It says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. Your soul needs to thirst for God because it recognizes how there's no hope in you. And that's what this passage is about. And it's titled, the sermon series uh, section is called um, Sin and Sinners. So that's what we're talking about today. Sin and Sinners. It's talking about you, all right? <laughs> Welcome to church. It's talking about me. Um, the bad news is that we, apart from Jesus, are enemies of God. We are in great need of saving, but the good news is that Jesus has come to save us. 
And uh, this passage, as I've been reading about it, there's a, a phrase that comes to me from a Star Wars movie, the first one ever made, uh, episode four. It's the first one, A New Hope. And it's where Princess Leia gives to R2-D2 the, you know, the little hologram thing. And she has that message for Obi-Wan Kenobi. And she says, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And what she's communicating in that time is that she's saying, uh, our situation is so bad It's such a dire situation. We need to reach out to this long lost Jedi who has powers beyond ourselves because we can't help ourselves. And you see, that's the message of Christianity. Christianity, the message of Christianity is not that Jesus came to give you a pep talk and some rock star of grace so that he could point you in the right direction. The message of Christianity is that Jesus came because you can't save yourself. We can't save ourselves. No amount of the good that we can do will ever impress God. And so Jesus had to come and do what we could not do for ourselves. He did it on our behalf. The message of Christianity is not try harder. Find the good deep within your heart. The message of Christianity is I am so bad. I'm so messed up. Help me, Jesus Christ. You're my only hope. And so that's my point for today. Our only hope is faith. Not faith. Our only hope is grace. (laughs) A lot different there. Our only hope is grace in the face of Jesus. How about that? Our only hope is grace in the face of Jesus. Our only hope is grace. Okay? So sin and sinners. This passage breaks down. It's all about sin. It's all about sinners. Breaks down to three points. Misunderstanding our sin problem. Facing our sin problem. And accepting our sin problem. So first verse here. Misunderstanding our sin problem. It says in verse uh, chapter 3 verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? I know you came into church asking those two same questions this morning. (laughs) What value is circumcision, Pastor? Here's what's going on. There's these people responding to Paul's message with some questions because they're a little confused. And that's actually to give us some good news. It's okay to be confused every once in a while. It shows that we're paying attention. And so what's going on is Paul is writing to the Roman church. And it's a bunch of little house churches. And there's two categories of people in these churches. There's uh, Jews who are Christians. So they're ethnically Jewish. They practice all the things that you read about in the Old Testament. But they believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised saving king from the Old Testament, which he is. So there's Jewish Christians. But then there's also Gentile Christians. So Gentile means non-Jewish. And so there's Greeks and different types of nationalities and races also there who aren't Jewish and they don't have the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, and so, but they believe that Jesus came, which he did. He came to live and die for them and resurrect for them also. And so there's these two types. But the problem with the two types of people, the Greeks and the Jews, is they were comparing themselves to each other because they thought that they were better. So the Jews were like, well, we're more religious and we don't eat bacon and we don't do these different things. Uh, And so therefore, we're more in line with God than you are. And God loves us more than he loves you. And the Greeks are like, well, bacon's awesome, you know. And so we, uh, and if, if that's confusing you, in the Old Testament, one of the commands, dietary commands was that the Jews weren't supposed to eat bacon. They still don't to this day. But so what's going on is, The Greeks were were saying, well, you guys are stuffy religious people banking too much on your moralism. Therefore, God loves us more. And so there's this fighting going on about who God loves more. And so Paul just comes into this and blows this up. And he's in chapter one, he says, look, everybody's a sinner. 
There's a problem with humanity, and it's this, that we've all wandered away to follow our own passions instead of God's passions. And the mere fact is, you can look at humanity, and it's getting worse, not because God is not being wrathful to us, but that's his way of being wrathful to us, just letting us get what we want and finding out that it's actually not good. And so Paul, he lists for the problem of humanity in chapter one, he lists a bunch of sins. So like in verse 29 of chapter one, it says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And he just goes on and on. He lists sexual sins and all these different things. And so immediately as he would have been listing those things, the Greeks would have said, holy cow, he's talking about me. I'm a sinner. But what had happened with the Jewish audience, the religious audience, they would have said, phew, good thing we're not those things. Good thing we don't hate God. Good thing we're not, you know, we don't do those sexual things like the Greeks and the Romans do. So then you turn the page and Paul gets to chapter two and he says, no, you religious people are worse. Because you have God's laws and you've seen God's nature and then you do those things in your heart anyways. That makes you more condemned. And what his point in chapter one and chapter two is, look, we're all under sin. Our only hope is grace. God's love coming towards us that has nothing to do with our inherent goodness at all. He loves us when we're the opposite of, uh, of love. We don't deserve to be loved and yet he loves us anyways. That's our only hope. It's grace. And so naturally, as these guys are trying to deal with this message, they come up with some questions. And so that's the question here. Then what advantages of being a Jew or, or the value of circumcision, which was the mark of their religion? What advantage of it is it to be religious? We might say in our day, what advantage is it then to grow up in the church? Like if we're all sinners, and it doesn't really matter, and grace is the only, why grow up in the church? Like when I was in high school, I'm like, why not just party? Like, why grow up in the church? And, and listen to what Paul says in verse two. Much in every way. There's a lot of advantage. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so he says to the Jews, hey, look, there's a lot of advantage to being Jewish because you have God talking to you all the time. The scriptures were given to the ethnic Jews. And in the same way, he would say to us as a church, hey, look, there's a lot of advantage of growing up in the church because every time you come to the church, the Bible's open and as God is speaking to you, the oracles of God are being read over you and to you and, and God is breathing his life into us. There's a lot of advantage of being in the church. And so the next question they ask is they say in verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Does the faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So they're looking at their other Jewish brothers and sisters and they're saying, well, we see them like saying they love God, but living like they don't. And we see them saying that they were waiting for the Messiah, but Jesus has come and they've abandoned Jesus. Does, does this mean that God's gonna back out on his promises to us as his Jewish people? You know, you might say in the church, like we see people and we come to church and we realize, man, there's a lot of sin in the church just as much as there is outside. And we look at other churches and we see them going astray from what the Bible teaches and we turn on the TV and we see telepreachers preaching something different than what the Bible says. Is God gonna abandon us as the church? Look at what, how Paul responds in verse four. By no means let God be true, though 
everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He says, by no means. A better translation for that would be, not on your sweet grandmother's life. <laughs> Heck no. H-E double hockey sticks, no. I, no. Not in a thousand lifetimes, no. By no means. God's faithfulness will not be disrupted by our faithlessness. Nothing that we can do can stop God from fulfilling his promises. God is faithful all the time. So then the next question they ask in verse 5 is, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way. He said, so the next question they're asking is, okay, wait a second. Well, if God's goodness is shown in the fact that he loves us in spite of us being unlovable, that shows how good he is, then it seems like we're kind of helping God out here by being unlovable. We're kind of helping God out by being sinners. We're showing how good he really is. So how dare he inflict wrath upon us? Or another way that you could see this is um, like when you compare two paints, like, you know, you think that I'm going to paint a wall white and then you go to Home Depot and there's like a thousand different colors of white and you didn't know how that, that could happen, you know, and you, so you get two colors of white and you paint one and it's like, it's got some other color in it, and then you put it next to a more pure white, all of a sudden you see how much difference there really is. And in a way, when we look at our sinfulness, it actually exposes the purity of God. We're, in comparison to him, it shows how good he really is. And so they're interpreting it as like, well, then we're helping God out. How dare he inflict wrath upon us? And again, Paul says, by no means, not in a thousand lifetimes. For how then could God judge the world? He can judge us because he's pure. He gives us grace, not because he has to, because he wants, but rather because he wants to. So in verse seven, it says, they ask another question. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And so their question here is, well, wait a second. If God is working all things to the end of his glory, even the sinfulness of humanity and the wickedness of humanity, then why just not sin and have a good time? Why not eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die? I mean, isn't God just doing it all for his glory anyways? That's the question that we're asking. Don't you feel yourself asking these kind of questions in our heart? You see, we ask, the, the, these questions expose two things going on in our heart. The, fun, the first problem that we have going on in our heart is that we're always trying to compare ourselves to other people. And then the second problem we have going on in our heart is that we're always trying to get away with as much as possible. And Paul is saying to these guys, you're missing the point. You're misunderstanding sin and grace. That's what he's getting at when he says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. And here's, here's the big deal. You're, if, if we're thinking these things, we're missing the point and missing the point leads to condemnation. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So I was thinking about this and I heard one time I was at a conference and a professor told us that he was trying to teach his students about grace and they just weren't getting it. So one day all of his students came into class and he said, hey, I got good news for you. I'm going to give you grace. Every one of you, have, I just turned in your final grades for the whole semester, even though it's the beginning, you all got A pluses. That's grace. And so 
they were kind of baffled. And he says, yeah, it's not based on your, what you can do for me. It's based on just a gift. It's a free gift. You all get A pluses. But so, the problem was is that some of the students went into the hallway and started being really upset and arguing. Like the really good students were like, I've put my time in. I've worked and I've studied. And this guy over here, he never even comes to class. He's always looking at my paper and he gets an A plus too. That's not fair. And as a professor, you'd come out and say, you're missing the point. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with God's mercy to you. That's sin. We, we have nothing to bring to the table. It's everything to do with God's gift towards us. That's grace. And then there's other students, and this was probably the student that I would be, who would be like, A plus, sweet, I don't have to go to class. I'm out. I'm done with this. And he would say, he would say to us, you're missing the point. Because the point of taking this class is not to earn a grade. The point is to engage with the material and learn and engage with relationships with each other. In the same way, the purpose of Christianity is not to earn something from God. You're not like working to get a get out of hell free card. The purpose of God's grace towards you is that you would walk in relationship with him. He longs to be close with you. And you cannot walk in sin and embrace him at the same time. And so he longs for this. And so Paul is just crying out, you're missing the point. I'm not talking about sin so you would compare yourselves to others. And I'm not talking about sin so that you could excuse sin and say, well, we're all sinners, so let's just sin anyways. I'm talking about sin so that you could see that your only hope is Christ. And so to lay into him and really give it to him in the closing part of his speech, this is what we see in verses 9 through 18. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we're all charged, already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That language is language of accord, as if the judge got up and read the, the laws. And he says, all are under sin. Nobody stands up and says, I'm innocent. We all just say, I'm guilty. And so Paul, in this next section, is throwing it in the face. He, he takes a bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament, one from Ecclesiastes, a bunch from the Psalms, and one from Isaiah. And he puts it right in front of us so that we would face our condition. Face our condition. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this next section together. Because sometimes I feel like we can come to church and just hear the pastor say something. But when we read it from the Bible ourselves, that's when we take it to heart. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to read this little section, verses the end of 10 through 18, starting with none is righteous. You guys ready? Don't leave me hanging up here. Okay? Let's do this together. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is who we are apart from Christ. That's hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow. Now, in this section, Paul talks about the source of our sin. He talks about the pervasiveness of our sin and the result of our sin. And so let's just kind of break that down as we go through it. First of all, the source of our sin, he says, is godlessness. 
If you look at verse 11, he says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Where does sin start? It starts with godlessness. No one understands. Like nobody can naturally in and of themselves understand God. Anything we know about God is because he's revealed something to us and opened up our eyes and our ears and our mind to understand. He's opened up our hearts to receive. No one can understand. It's like last week when the, El- the Living Sons Elko band was here playing and, and Pastor Nathan was here preaching. I took them out to lunch afterwards and they all work for Minds up there. And the, the bass player, Chuck, was explaining what he did for the mind for like five minutes. He got really excited and it had something to do with a lot of chemicals. And I was like, bro, I do not understand what you're saying. Like, unless you like show me, I won't understand. And that's actually how we are spiritually. Unless God shows us specifically and we have a God moment where he opens up our eyes, we in ourselves cannot understand God. We need to be awakened to the reality of who he is. And so if you're a Christian, praise God that this has happened. And if you're not a Christian, that needs to be your plea. God, show me. If you're real, show me. Prove it. It's a good prayer to pray. Then he says, no one seeks for God. In other words, when we're born, we're all born seekers of something. God created us to be worshipers, to ascribe worth to something. And this here says that from birth, we're not seeking God. We're seeking other things. We're seeking ourselves. We're seeking different pleasures of the world. We're seeking all different types of things from birth. Now, what that means is nobody is born with a clean slate. Now, I know we like look at really beautiful babies and you're like, man, they're just so precious. I was born a baby with a clean slate. Look at that. Then you have a baby and you're like, they are not born with a clean slate. <laughs> Sinners from birth. <laughs> All of us. And it's a real gift, I think, to us as parents because we realize, holy cow, like, this is who I am before God. And then it says, no, but all have turned aside. All have turned aside. And what this, it continues on that theme of seeking God. Like uh, Augustine in the, four cent, or in the 400s said that we've turned aside. Like sin is not actions, it's direction. We just talked about in that video, Nathan said, what sin is, is missing the mark. Why do you miss the mark? Because you have bad aim. Worship leader Matt Papa says that it's, it's about bad aim. From the time we're birthed, we think if we aim or point ourselves in different directions other than God, we'll be more happy. And that's the essence of sin. It's, it's a direction problem. It's a focus problem. It's a problem of the heart. And then he concludes at the 18, to sum it all up, there's no fear of God before their eyes. The essence of sin is godlessness, not wanting God. Wanting, not wanting to elevate him, but rather wanting to elevate ourselves. That's the source of all sin. Okay, then he gets into the pervasiveness of sin. Sin affects everybody to the core of their being. Everybody. Look at these words in here. They're difficult words. None is righteous. Then like, if we're questioning, God says, no, not one. Nobody. We're like, not even Mother Teresa. Nobody. Nobody's righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. Nobody can stand before God in heaven and say, I deserve to be here. No person can do that. Nobody is righteous. Not even one. It affects everybody and, and it affects us to the core of our being. Look at what it says. Together, 
they have become worthless. Now I know, let's pause there, because that worthless is like, really, humanity, we're all worthless? I don't know if I can buy that. Well, maybe a better translation, this was written in Greek, maybe a better translation would be contaminated. Together they have been all contaminated. So like, if you have some water, if like some organisms get in there that contaminate the water, it doesn't matter how much water you have, it's all contaminated. And therefore, it's rendered worthless for drinking. That's what it's talking about. Humans, we, as humans, every human does have worth because we're all made in the image of God. Amen? Even the worst, most vile human beings still are made in the image of God. So they have worth. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about worthlessness in the sense of righteousness. We have nothing to bring to the table. So it's like if you were to bring a $100 bill and maybe you really have this fascination with what Benjamin Franklin looked like, so you cut out all the middle of Benjamin Franklin's out of the $100 bill and you gave the bank a $100 bill without the Benjamin Franklin face, they would say, what is that? You're like, it's a dollar bill. Most of it's there. And they're like, no, it's worthless because it's been contaminated. It's been defected. And that's basically what God is saying. Because of our sin in our hearts, Our righteousness is contaminated in every single way. There's nothing that we can bring to the table. Nothing. It's very offensive. And then it also affects what we do. It says nobody does good. Not even one. And I will tell you, just honestly, I take offense mostly to that one. Because I look at the world and I'm like, man, Hurricane you know, Irma and Harvey, you see all these people from all these different faiths and all these different walks of life helping out. And I say to God, isn't that them doing good? I even look at my own life and I'm like, man, I'm really trying to do good. Are I not doing good? How is it that you can say nobody does good, not even one? How is that? And here's, I think, how God would respond. Goodness is about your measuring stick. When you're comparing yourselves to other or to what you perceive to be goodness in your mind or whatever moral scale you have in your head, yeah, you can come up with a level of goodness. But when God talks about goodness, he's talking about complete, perfect, pure goodness. The way that Jesus summarized it was this, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, think about that. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength at all times in every moment to never be wavering in your devotion to him or your questioning of him or anything like that. To never give up on God, never to doubt God, never to sin against God. And then to love your neighbor as yourself as much as you think about preserving yourself, advancing yourself, caring for yourself, serving yourself, protecting yourself. You need to be doing that for your neighbor. That's the standard. We're all guilty. Nobody does good if that's the standard. Not even one. Not even one. And then it affects, it even comes out. If you don't believe it, just listen to your words. Paul says it comes out and what we say, it says their throat is an open grave. That's a very big picture of like, if you put somebody in a grave and they were in there for a few days and then you opened it up, it would stink. And what Jesus says is out of the overflow of our mouth, the heart speaks. And what he's saying is this, it's like, look, you don't believe that you're messed up? Listen to how you talk and smell the stench of your dead heart. Listen to the words you say when you drive. Listen to how you speak to your children. Listen to what, how you speak about your enemies or the other political party. Listen to how you speak about your boss. Listen to your own self-talk about yourself and smell the stench. The venom of asps is beneath their lips. An asp was a, a venomous snake. 
the venom of rattlesnakes is on our tongues. Like, if we don't believe it, listen to the words that we say. The book of James says that we've been able to tame every kind of creature and put them in a zoo. Like, we can put Shamu in a swimming pool, killer whale, but nobody's been able to tame the tongue. And our tongues are evidence of how depraved our heart really is. And so this is Paul just making a case to us of like, hey, if you don't believe it, just listen, just listen. Okay, and then it also, uh, what this all leads to is a result, a, a terrible result of broken relationships. It leads to deceit, slander, hatred, murder, and division. Look at what he says here. It says, their feet are, sh- quick, are, are, their, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and ministry and the way of peace they have not known. Like they, they don't, humanity is not guiding towards being united in community. We're actually just continuing to separate and more division, more hatred, more slander, more deceit, more murder. Why is that? Because we're depraved in our hearts. We're contaminated with sin. This is a picture of who we are apart from God's loving grace. It's an honest reflection of our hearts. The doctrine for this is called total depravity. John Stott says, I've never met anybody who doesn't believe in total depravity unless they don't understand it. And what total depravity means is this, is that not one aspect of our mind, will, emotion, works, or words, not one of those things is, a, is, is free from being affected by sin. Every part of everything we do, say, think is affected in one way or another by sin. Now this is not utter depravity. Utter depravity is a false teaching that says that all humans are worms and they're, worse than, they're as bad as they possibly could be. That's a false teaching. We're not as bad as we possibly could be. There's variations of evil. And even those who are evil have characters of God's nature within them. J.I. Packer says it like this. We are not as bad as we could be, but none of the good we do is as good as it should be. And I get this as a pastor, okay? One of the things that I, I do is like, like if I see a piece of trash, I'll pick it up. I think I learned that from my parents or whatever. But I'm, and, and it's a good thing to do. Like you care about nature, you see trash, you pick it up. But there's like a thing in my heart, if I'm honest, where I'm like, I'm at Smith's and I go to pick up a piece of trash and I'm like, I hope some people realize how humble of a pastor I am as I'm picking up this piece of trash. <laughs> like maybe some people will notice, hey, isn't that a pastor from Living Stones? Man, those Living Stones pastors, they must be awesome. <laughs> and, here, and that's just how sick my heart is. I don't want that there, but that's there. Or... Here, here's even worse. I say I'm like a proponent of the environment and I want to pick up the trash, but if there's a lot of trash, I'm like, yeah, I don't have time for that. <laughs> and I'm just a total walking hypocrite. Why? Because even the good I do is still tainted with selfishness and sin. So what's my only hope? Well, grace in the face of Jesus is my only hope. You know, I was hiking through the woods a few weeks ago and there was these beautiful pine trees everywhere and, and we were on a path that would go through and occasionally you'd lose the path. And it was awesome because they were just beautiful pine trees. But what was not awesome about it is when you brushed against the pine trees, like thousands of flies would jump, like just swarm out of the fly. I mean, and you would eat them. They'd get in your mouth and your hair and your eyes. It was horrible. It was like the plague of Egypt just coming out of the trees. 
And this happened for several days. And I felt like after a few days, it was God, I was thinking about this passage. It was God saying to me, Kyle, this is you in your life. From a distance, you like to look at yourself and you like to say, look, I'm pretty good. But when the Holy Spirit speaks truth into your life, you realize how many flies are actually present. And I would say that the, one of the biggest reasons that people, the biggest obstacles to us receiving God is we like to look at ourselves from a distance and we don't want to let the Holy Spirit disrupt our lives. And so that's our invitation. Our invitation is not just to face the problem, but to accept it. We have to accept that we're sinners. Now, naturally, when we see the flies of our heart and the nastiness of our lives, and then immediately we do a few things. We try to cover it up. We try to make it better. We say to God, give me your rules so that I can conquer the system. But look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says, now that we, we know that whatever the law or the rules of God say, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And, and this is what God is saying to us is this. You want rules? The rules are not given so that you can earn something from God. The rules are given so that you could realize how messed up you really are. That's what the law of God is given. That's what the Ten Commandments are for. So that they would show us the primary reason of the Ten Commandments. There's other reasons too, but the primary reason is that we would look at it as a mirror and see our flaws. The primary reason that Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself is so that we would say, I need a savior. And that's what he's getting at when he says, every mouth may be stopped. He's painting a picture of a courtroom and he's saying this, we all walk into God's courtroom a little cocky. We're like, we see each other in line and we're like, I went to high school with you, you're not getting in. You know, and like we, we go and we walk up and we're ready to present our goodness to God. And then the judge stands up and he reads the 10 commandments. And he reads the law to us. Part of the law, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in every way. And where we were cocky and ready to speak, all of a sudden our mouths are shut because we know we're guilty. The rules of God, the laws of God serve as an x-ray and a diagnosis to our brokenness. Now, I get this. Now, you guys have all been looking at my cast and I've got like a thousand questions about what'd you do to your arm? Here's what happened. I was in the forest and a bear attacked me and I fought a bear. <laughs> you should see the bear. He's far worse. Now, that's not what happened. I was, we were getting ready to go hunting. My sister was on a ATV quad behind me and we, uh, we were going way too fast in the dark. We weren't wearing helmets, although I'm sick of that question, so I've just been telling people I have been wearing a helmet, you know. We, and we hit water and we flipped. We could have been bad, um, but thankfully God preserved our life and Jesus was with us. And um, so we got really banged up. So for a couple weeks, I think we went in the emergency room, but they didn't find anything. A couple weeks, my wrist has been bothering me. So my mom and my wife were like, you need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, no, doctors just want your money. And then they send you home. And, so they kept saying, go to the doctor, go to the doctor. And so we went around at a family barbecue a couple weeks ago and the guy said, hey, I had a broken arm and there was a bone in my wrist that I didn't get fixed a couple years before. And because I'd waited so long, 
they had to actually do surgery and take bone graft from my hip and all this stuff. And it's right where your arm was hurting. And I'm like, great. So the next day I went to get an x-ray and sure enough, I'm broken right there. And the, the thing is, is the doctor came in and he said, hey, it's good news. We caught it early enough. I think you're going to be able to be fixed without surgery. And so I, was, I would be unable to receive that healing unless I was able to accept my brokenness, which is what I was not wanting to do for a long time. <laughs> I'm a tough guy, you know. But spiritually speaking, we got to lay our tough guy aside. You will never be able to be healed unless you're willing to accept your brokenness. We gotta face our diagnosis. We gotta let the law of God, the rules of God, show us how much we need a savior. Our only hope is grace in the face of Jesus. That's our only hope. And the good news is that God has given us a way to be saved. Jesus has come for us. I mean, this is what we're all here for, right? We're all here for Jesus. I mean, the The bad news about ourselves is pretty bleak. We're messed up, even from birth. But the good news of Jesus is totally in contrast to us. Think about his life. Think about how he was born. All of us were born in the lineage of Adam, receiving our father's sin. But Jesus, uh, he was born by the Holy Spirit, meaning from the time that he was born, he had a heart for God. From the time that he was born. We grow up and and we try to do our best, but we still mess up and screw up all over the place. There's, Jesus was perfect in all of his ways, even as a child. I mean, imagine being Jesus' brother or sister. His mom's just like, why can't you be more like Jesus? And they're like, ah! <laughs> you know, we fail, we think we're strong, and then the littlest temptation comes our way, and we give in. I always tell people like, Never think that you're above, like I tell married people, like never think you're above an adultery or an affair. Just been a pastor long enough to realize every single one of us is just one circumstance away from screwing up our entire lives. That, it's all in our heart. But think, consider Jesus on the opposite. The first thing that he did when he started his ministry is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he didn't eat for 40 days. That's a long time. Like I go three meals and I'm like, I need some food. 40 days he didn't eat. And at that time when he was at his weakest, Satan came and tempted him. Now we get tempted by lots of things. Jesus got tempted by Satan face to face. And while Jesus was at his weakest, he still defeated the enemy. Where we, when we're at our strongest, still give into temptation. He's so much greater. His life matters. That's why the Bible just doesn't talk about his uh, death. It talks about his life. And one of the things that you see in his life is he goes around and he starts healing people because his healing is a picture to us of what he came to do. He came to heal our brokenness. But you can't be healed unless you admit your brokenness. And then on the cross is what he was doing. What was he doing? He was being broken on the cross. That's why it's such a gruesome picture. There was blood, betrayal, a kangaroo court just condemning him even though he was innocent. His beard was ripped out of face. He screamed out in agony. He died stripped naked. All of his dignity was lost. Flies everywhere because of the stench of what was happening. Even the clothes that he had was gambled away. He literally, everything was stripped. This is the God who gives all things. Everything was taken away from him. And when he was dying on the cross, darkness came over and there was an earthquake. It's a bleak picture. It's supposed to be a mirror to who we are. And we need that mirror. 
Because if we don't ever look at the cross and the gruesomeness of it, we'll never receive the goodness of his gospel. Now, in the Old Testament, they had lots of sacrifices. You read through like Leviticus, you're like, man, they really love killing animals. Like, they just keep going at it. And you ask, why is that? And the reason why is because God was giving them a physical picture, an imagery of what our sin really is. They're butchering animals and slaughtering them. And if you've ever done that, it's a gruesome thing. It stinks. There's flies. It's gross. There's blood everywhere. Things are sticky. It's just horrible. And that's what our sin is. But those sacrifices have been replaced by a more gruesome sacrifice. The perfect son of God being stripped and bloodied and beaten and broken on our behalf. But it doesn't stop there. Three days after he resurrected from the grave. And he still has scars in his hands and his side to remind us that he didn't just come to embrace our brokenness. He came to defeat it. And it's an ever-present reminder of him in heaven. And so... His life matters, his death matters. But you can't, that will never be good news to you until the bad news is bitter. Like, you know, it's been said a lot before. Grace is not good until sin is bitter. You're far worse than you like to think that you are, but you're far more loved than you could ever imagine. Now, I got like two minutes to do why does this matter in my everyday life, okay? Here's why it matters. If you believe this doctrine of total depravity, you will be set free from judgment because you will start to realize that all the things that you hate in other people are also found in your heart. The other political party, the people at work, your bosses, the other people on the road, your friends, your enemies. A lot of Christian people in church are talking about those burners, they disgust me. But when you realize total depravity, you stop looking at people with disgust because you're disgusted by your own heart. But you're also freed because you're, you realize that that disgusting heart is loved by the love of God. So judgment, you're free, set free from judgment. You're also set free from entitlement. How often do we get angry at God because we're like, God, I'm doing all these good things for you. I'm trying. And then you're just making my whole life fall apart. I'm getting sick and this is but when you realize that if we were to get what we deserved, it's hell immediately, damnation, condemnation forever. Man, even in tough times, you're like, man, I'm just thankful, God, you're giving me breath right now. And I'm trusting that this pain I'm feeling, you're using to do something to shape me good. Man, I, I ate today. Thank you, God. My, I have a home today that's not flooded. Thank you, God. And for the people down in the South who are brothers and sisters, I got a flooded home. Wow. I have a home. <laughs> like all the, you're free from entitlement and you re result in gratefulness and joy. Are you, aren't you tired of not being grateful? Well, it starts with understanding this doctrine of total depravity. Okay, then next, you're free from the burden of performance. Many people understand, okay, I can't do anything to make myself a Christian, but after you become a Christian, you think that it's on you to keep impressing God. And so you feel like you're just on this treadmill of performance and you're always falling and hitting your face and God is always displeased with you. But listen to me, if you're a Christian, Jesus has already done all the work. He's 100% pleased with you and nothing you could do could take that away. Amen. Amen. That's good. Like it, it, I've heard it said before that we bring our offerings to God, but we collect like a bunch of flowers and in it is a bunch of weeds. Jesus takes out all the weeds and makes it all flowers and gives it to God and then we get the credit for it. 
It's a beautiful thing. You know, at this church with the leaders, it's probably messed up, but I do it anyways. Like when somebody's about to preach or do stage comm, I say, don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. And I say it as a joke. But I think that the problem is, is a lot of us live our Christian lives like that. Don't screw it up. Don't screw it up or God will be upset. But the, there's a good answer to don't screw it up. It's I can and I can't. I, I will and I can't. Like, I will screw it up. But guess what? Nothing I can do can screw up what God has already given me. I will screw it up and I can't screw it up. So it's freeing. And then lastly, you're gonna be freed from false hope in humanity. So much of our disappointment comes because we, expect, we, we didn't believe in the total depravity of other people's hearts. So we get into a relationship and then they abandon us or betray us and we say, I don't know how they could ever do it. How could they do that to me? Well, you need to believe in total depravity. We could all do that to each other. And then sometimes you screw up very badly and you are surprised with yourself and say, how could I do that? Well, because you're totally depraved. It's in there. But when you understand that, you actually are a lot more free to just be like, you know what? Our hope isn't in humanity in the first place. It's in the creator of humanity, the sustainer of humanity and the savior of humanity. And so I have friends who are, you know, I was at a wedding and this guy was like, I just got to reach inside my heart and I know that there's going to be some goodness and I'll get through. And I'm like, dude, that's an empty well. Quit reaching inside your heart. Reach to the savior of the universe, the creator of your heart. Amen. Our only hope is grace in the face of Jesus. I'm done. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you. You're so good to us. You've been so gracious to us. This is a freeing passage. Give us the grace not only to see it, but to accept it. In your great name we pray, amen.